3.3 billion people around the world are reliant on seafood for nutrition. That is less of a choice for them to simply stop eating seafood. Now, I've had people in when giving these talks, people say, well, but, but hang on, Simon, uh, Netflix is, is really only a US and EU thing, right? Well, you saw that map at the start, right? That's a, it's a global platform, and it really communicated as a global problem. And I don't think this solution is a global solution. Hello, you are listening to Studium Generale, the podcast of the Erasmus University. My name is David Boeren, program maker science, and together with my colleagues, I organize lectures, workshops, film screenings, and more for students, but also for non-students, to broaden their horizons. Professor Simon Bush came and visited us to talk about an important topic, namely the fishing industry. Because there are more than a few missteps at sea daily, but what is really going wrong in the industry? Is it as bad as the documentary Suspiracy makes it out to be, for example? Simon Bush is professor and chair of the Environmental Policy Group at Wageningen University. His main area of research focuses on the design of governance arrangements for global sustainable seafood. Are you interested in more of these kinds of lectures? Then check out our website, social media or YouTube channel, RSG Erasmus, for our upcoming events, or as you're doing right now, to listen to some of our previous events. Have fun listening to this lecture. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Lenya. Seaspiracy, indeed. I think the first thing we should ask for those here in the room, and I think I can still see you through the lights, how many people have seen the documentary? Now, that's the audience you want, right? More or less everybody. A couple of hands didn't go up. Good. So we're, we're talking to an informed, I'm talking to an informed audience. It was an interesting thing in the introduction that Simon Bush thinks you should eat fish. Well, oh, that sort of goes a bit too far. Should is always a difficult thing. I wouldn't say anyone should do anything, but we are indeed going to talk about the conclusion of the film, Seaspiracy, and all of you know, we don't have to give away the punchline here, right? All of you know what that answer is. But let me run you through indeed, also for those at home and watching online, what this film is all about. The film is really what it says on the film, on the slide, right? It, 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 it's an expose. It's made by an apparent filmmaker who stumbles across this issue of unsustainability at sea. And that's really the, the, the genre, is, if you like, right? There's a, a filmmaker who asks some questions, some simple questions about, should, should I eat fish? Can I eat fish conscionably? And the answer is, well, no. And the answer to that is not just no, the answer is, well, actually, you should become a vegan. But behind that question really is this statement, right? An expose exposing the fishing industry. And that's an interesting starting point, because for a lot of people around the world, there was not really anything exposed by these films. Huh? There's lots of issues that are well known. But for a general audience, that was the impression you get when you watch the film. So, what was the other major sort of lines in the film. Well, there's a lot, that are, a lot of statements that make up this film, and I'll go into those uh, a little bit later. But this is, this is one of the most recurring statements around unsustainable fishing or the fishing industry in general, and I'll get into where it comes from later, but, you know, what is it, 2048? If you guys can see that very well, I'm not sure. But empty oceans by 2048 these very apocalyptic visions of fishing and the damage that fishing can do. And I think that is really another major theme that runs through this film. It brings across a very, indeed, apocalyptic vision around what's happening at the oceans and, of course, putting the blame very firmly on those that interact with the seafood industry. It's not just fishing. Of course, you've seen it, so you know it's also aquaculture. Seafood in general as a very apocalyptic, uh, let's say, food production system. And as, you know, we, we know what the answer is, go vegan. And I think it's also interesting to note, huh, we have to be aware of what we're watching, right? As critical viewers, we have to be aware that indeed this was funded by vegan activists. They, they knew what they were presenting. They knew they wanted to bring across a message, building on a previous film, Cowspiracy, looking at the beef industry. They moved to the seafood industry with that same message. The only way to eat responsibly 
in terms of animals is to simply not eat them. Now that's a choice, that's a choice. Everyone has that choice. Going back to the statement that I think you should uh, eat fish, no, I think you should be able to have a choice of eating fish, right? And for some of us, there is a choice. And for many of us in the world, there isn't a choice as to whether you want to or should stop eating this particular source of nutrition, protein and nutrition. These are the sort of headlines that I'm going to talk about in the rest of, uh, in the rest of this lecture. It's also good to pause, I think, on, on what you're actually watching again when you watch a Netflix film. Huh? And maybe I'll put this in context. There's been a number of uh, critical films around the fishing industry, and I think that always, in any sector, there should be critical films made, right? That's good journalism, good documentary making. Uh, the difference this time, well, there's a few differences, but one of the differences in terms of the, the reach and the scope of people that were reached, that were, have watched this film, was, was really this Netflix thing, right? This is a film that went around the world in the matter of a week. And that, I think, in terms of, well, the seafood, I can't speak for other industries, but in terms of the seafood industry, you really start to see, uh, net, like never before, these themes and issues uh, really bring, bring, being brought to the public through this platform, this global platform, which I find is, is very interesting. And you'll see it indeed in a, num a number of other documentaries they have, uh, whether it's about avocados or, or, or beef, uh, the same things we, we see, this, this rapid platformization of messaging around uh, essentially uh, environmental issues. Uh, you could even go to so far as to say sort of a green populism around the world. So that's also a context which as a social scientist working on governance issues I find particularly interesting in this broader scope, right? What's this film, where does this film position itself in, the, in a broader debate? And whatever I go on to say now, you know, I think it is, it's the one thing that this film has really managed to do is really to bring these discussions out, that I'm invited here to speak to you wouldn't have come about if Seaspiracy wasn't there, right? Um, so talking about these things and providing a platform for discussing these things is a positive outcome of a film like this. But as I'll get into, when a film's made like this, of course, it's very important that the facts are used the right way, right? And as so far as we know, in a scientific process, what are the issues and what, therefore, are the kinds of decisions we should base uh, in terms of solutions can we base uh, th well, those, those answers on. Now, before I look at the other side of the, the, the screen there, huh, it's not just the Netflix part of this, but it's also, and this is where I started to really get quite interested in, in this film. I, I saw you know, the film on Netflix, I hadn't watched it at the time, and all of a sudden I start really seeing all these celebrities starting to also make claims, very general claims, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to eat seafood again, uh, stop eating seafood, be a vegan, there's various, uh, various claims being made. And also through the power of social media, you see the reach of this message being amplified substantially beyond Netflix, uh, noting again that I didn't see the film, but I had seen through the Linda magazine, uh, this fist for fungus, uh, so replacement uh, for your fish. What will you do if you can't eat fish? Well, here are some great ideas. Uh, and various other popular magazines, but also indeed on these social media platforms. And celebrities, the celebritization of these, these, these environmental issues being played out to really a substantial following, right? Some of these individuals on the screen, 4.1 or so million, I think, uh, Sir Paul McCartney has in terms of followers. And uh, I think this is one of the Kardashians, right? Courtney Kardashian, 115 million followers. So the sort of amplification of this message, uh, again, is quite impressive and all built again on this, this, this new world we live on, live in, I should say. But indeed, we could talk about this as in, in terms of, of sort of mass-mediated sustainability, right? We all have an opinion around what sustainable is, and if you really look at what sustainability is, it, it is imperfectly measurable, right? We haven't got any single... Uh, measure that we can apply to sustainability. Does that mean that things like sustainable fishing and sustainable aquaculture can't be defined as the film claims? Well, no, I don't go that far. Imperfectly measurable doesn't mean measurable. Uh, there's a measurable element to sustainability and we can, in various ways, make those measurements. But there's also a very normative, even emotive side of sustainability, and that's what opens the, the, the broad subject up indeed to 
public debate and quite emotional public debate. And what was also interesting in this particular film, the case of this film, is that we saw indeed, let's call them the celebrities, really uh, amplifying her uh, to their followers on the basis of Netflix, don't eat fish, become a vegan in some instances. But you also saw a number of... Uh, well, self-proclaimed experts emerging around the film saying, no, this is rubbish, this is a bunch of lies, you know, for whatever, a number of reasons. And if you go indeed on YouTube, you'll be able to find any number of films sort of counteracting these, uh, these, uh, these, these statements that are made in Netflix. But there was also, and the community I belong to, the scientific community, uh, also came out, which I found very interesting, almost unanimously uh, against this film. Um, and again, that brings it back what I started with, you know. There is indeed a lot of concern and existing concern around the seafood industry, fishing and farming. And there's a whole bunch of scientists around the world who normally really, really don't agree with everything each other says in this particular moment came together and said, well, okay, let's have this debate. We're glad that the debate is there because the film has been made, but now let's have the debate on the basis of the current science, the current science. And let's just not do it with scientists. Let's all also speak to the, the NGOs that have been busy with this, that very large number of NGOs that have been busy with sustainable seafood issues for a number of years as well. Let's go into discussion with them. Some of them, of course, were, were highlighted in the film were not portrayed in a very positive light in the film. In fact, many colleagues that I have working in the NGO sector have said this film has put us 20 years back in terms of our engagement with the fishing industry and the aquaculture industry. Because what is it doing? It's creating polarisation. It's not creating a bridge for engagement. It's not creating a bridge for discussion. It's pushing people into a corner where the advocates, the NGO advocates around sustainability are finding their work more difficult, and the, the scientists are frustrated that the work that we're doing collectively perhaps isn't given the same kind of platform that a film on Netflix can gain in a very, very short time. So that's where you see a number of different uh, opinions coming together, um, some scientific, some more societal claims and concerns, which is very fair, uh, but they're not coming together in a very positive, I would say, reinforcing, engaging way. Uh, we're not in discussion, with, discussion with, with each other through this film. And what were some of the claims that were made? Well, we can run through them. Uh, misleading statements. Well, again, I can, I can talk to some of those misleading statements in, uh, in some of the, the following slides. Privileged solutions is one of the other things that we, we hear if you look around in terms of the critiques of this film. Privileged in the sense where we started with, again, you know, what is the choice? Should we not eat fish or do you have the choice not to eat fish? Well, I would say, again, that's a very privileged position and I'll get to that towards the end of the lecture tonight. Unethical interviews. Yeah, well, I've spoken to some journalist uh, colleagues about this who work in the industry and, and they're, they're really quite shocked about the way that certain interviews were conducted. Also seeing direct colleagues who are actually interviewed in the film, um, a two-hour interview and you have one line or 15 seconds of that interview actually put into the film. Huh? So there, there are some concerns being voiced around how the film was made. Um, yeah, and we can go to misleading statements, but there's also indeed just flat-out inaccuracies. And again, I'll run through a few of those uh, in the, some of the slides to follow. And I think I've covered the rest there. I'm really coming to this point of polarisation without realistic solutions. Huh? And that, that's really a theme that I want to draw out and I want to have a discussion with you after the lecture as well. Is this a realistic solution, being a vegan, or should we think differently about this? So having said all of that, having said all of that, we get to this question, right? Did the film say anything good? Am I going to stand here and say that it got everything wrong, that there's no issues at sea? Well, no, I think I've already given you that indication, right? There, there's a lot in general that they've pointed at which are real concerns at sea in the seafood industry. I don't think anyone is, is denying that, right? Anyone in all of the critique, all of the debate that's emerged has not said this film has, is, is living on a completely different planet. Not at all. Overfishing exists. What the scale of that overfishing is becomes then the point of discussion. Practices like shark finning, removing top predators from the sea, 
That's a real concern that a lot of people indeed are busy with. Human rights abuses. We've seen, well, actually for decades, but only in the last seven to eight years have we seen a global recognition that there are substantial human rights abuses within the seafood industry. Now, I'm not making excuse here. It's not only the seafood industry, and it's not, as this film would argue, only in Southeast Asia. It's a global issue, and in the interim, 2013, 2012, when some of the cases became globally recognised, because regionally they were already understood, we've seen a lot of action. And I'll get back to that again in a few slides. Competition between industrial and small-scale fishing, also a fair issue. Aquaculture, related environmental impacts. Again, I'll get into this, but yes, there are some issues associated with aquaculture production. The way the film brings it across is that you have shrimp and you have salmon aquaculture. Actually, there are 345 species which are growing globally along a huge spectrum of production systems. But yes, in general, we should be concerned about aquaculture and the environmental impacts of those, those production systems. Unsustainable public subsidies, well, yes, also. There are all kinds of subsidies. There are what you could argue as very positive subsidies, subsidies which go to innovation, innovating new sustainable fishing gears, for instance. But there's also damaging subsidies, subsidies which create overcapacity at on the sea. Too many boats, right, with too bigger engines, with too bigger nets. That becomes a damaging negative subsidy. And plastics, another really important issue, right? Yes, there's too much plastic in the oceans, absolutely. But you're thinking critically, I hope, and you're thinking, okay, well, I've seen the film, and all of these issues, do they all add up to simply one solution? That's my challenge to, to you this evening or this afternoon. Feels like the evening, it's dark, right? That's my challenge to you. Does all of this add up to stop eating fish? The world should stop eating seafood. Because that's what they try to do. They bring it all to that. Okay, so even though they're pointing to these issues, again, I'm going to come back to it and we're going to run through them now, right? Major, inaccurate, major inaccuracies. I can't go through the entire film, but we can talk about issues that I don't cover afterwards if you have any questions, but I can cover, I think I've got six points that I want to cover in terms of inaccuracies. Also coming back, and that's a theme I'm already bringing out, I hope you can see that, right? This simple solutionism, the silver bullet answer to a global food system problem. And this rather, perhaps more controversial point of potentially more harm than good. Yes, this film has created debate, but there is other debates going on. Huh? And we've just recently had the United Nations Food Systems Summit, where I'll show you uh, at the end, there's really uh, been a focus on the role of seafood, what we've tried to re-term blue food. And we've done that because there is already a very severe lack of recognition, lack of data even, you could argue, around the broader impacts and importance of this food, blue food, to providing sustainable livelihoods, to providing global, important source of global nutrition. Um, and even when seen in the context of a food system, not just focused on aquaculture or fisheries, but we see fish and seafood feeding into a global food system, Actually, there are some environmentally positive outcomes that can be realised through this industry. Not all forms of production of seafood, but certainly some. And again, linking that back to this simple solutionism, we can almost undermine any of those gains by simply coming up with some simple answers. So let's through, run through some of these, what I'm calling, counterclaims. Huh? Um, the first, and that goes back to that slide, which I'm not sure you're able to see. Fish stocks are, this is my counterclaim, are not going to collapse by 2048. Not only my counterclaim, there's, a, there's really a body of science that goes around this counterclaim. Now, where did this statement come from? It comes from a paper by Boris Werman and, and, and colleagues, a long list of colleagues in a paper in 2000. 
and 6. Now, this paper was actually focused on biodiversity, and one part of the paper uh, talked about, based on some work they were doing, this modelling work they were doing, that there would be a collapse of biodiversity and a collapse of ecosystems given certain fishing pressures by 2048. Now, that's an alarming statement. And that's a statement that was picked up by the communications departments of those scientists, and that's been reproduced time and time again, as we know, also in the recent Seaspiracy film. Now, this is the running theme also in terms of how science is used in this film. We have a paper in 2006. In the interim, those authors have been very busy. Science doesn't stop. Part of science is also about debating with each other. Right? So apart from the fact this wasn't really the main point of the paper, but was amplified, that's fine. It creates debate. Debate is good. There was really academic conflict, as much as academics get into conflict, around this particular statement. And that led to new collaborations between various universities in the United States and beyond to look at really what is the status of fishing stocks around the world. And that led to data being collected. Because there's one thing, again, another claim in the film, which I'm not going to put on a slide, but another claim is that, that scientists have no idea how to assess the sustainability of fisheries. That's a science unto itself of how to define sustainability. What are the new ways and techniques that we can assess whether there is fishing mortality that exceeds the biomass in the ocean? Huh? That's the F word up here, rather. And indeed, biomass at MSY, maximum sustainable yield. How do you define maximum sustainable yield? There's a whole debate that goes back decades around that as well, but it's a moving target and a moving area of scientific inquiry. So because of this statement, there was a whole bunch of scientists got together and indeed thinking, well, how can we better understand what's going on? We need indeed, as I said, we need data. We need data that can, we can use. And when you look around, in that interim period, over that interim period, in fact, over the last 20, 30 years, if we look at where the main databases are, we go to the FAO, right? The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And you quickly find out that actually those databases are based on national statistics systems, which are very opaque in terms of how they're collecting information. They just simply put numbers, some countries are, put simply numbers into the database when literally they're called up by the FAO. Other countries have enormous infrastructures designed to collect data around their fisheries that are at near, today at near real-time uh, timescales, almost present-day timescales. So there's a lot of difference in what data is available. But this collection of data to be able to assess the current status has led to uh, various, various outcomes, one of which is the RAM Legacy Database and a series of papers where we start to see today, and by the time they were making this film, they could have found similar statements that around 50% of global stocks are healthy or increasing. Now, that also goes back to classifications, right? If we look at the FAO classifications, you see a few different ones when it comes to the status of stocks. This is brought out by the FAO every year. We have overfished, fully exploited, and underfished. Now, in this film, you saw some people being interviewed saying this is, this is a ridiculous term, underfished. This is, this is an evil term, I think, almost the statement being used, right? Underfished, like there's a resource that we should... Okay, well, that's still, I think, a fair statement, right? We don't have to get into the, to the word usage necessarily, but yes, they're underfished. That's the notion, that's the idea that the FAO puts forward. But underfished and fully exploited. Fully exploited... People often think, well, that's unsustainable. No, that's not unsustainable. Fully exploited means that it's exploited, fully exploited at maximum level, at, at sustainable levels. That's the assumption, right? That's the assumption. Now, of course, if you dig down, sure, you might find other things. But just on that word categorization, they're some of the, the problems that we run into. But if we go back and really look at some, some fishing data, then we do see that 50%, this is based on the work that's been done by a team, a large team of global experts, 50% of global stocks are healthy or, in fact, are increasing. Now, this figure is an interesting one. Huh? This is part of the RAM legacy uh, database. And I won't get into the... We won't do a fishery science uh, lecture today, but all you need to look at is over time we see it moving from 
this, in your view, this bottom right corner, right? And the concentration seems to come to the middle here. Now, the bottom right corner, that's, that's a pretty healthy place in terms of biomass, right? We see biomass is higher the further we go this way, right? But as fishing pressure, the F, right, the fishing pressure increases, then the biomass reduces, right? And the fishing pressure increases. So that's why you're moving towards this top, in your view, top left corner of the figure. But you'll see over time, through the 60s, the 70s, we see this increase from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, if we go a bit quicker, then you start to see it pushing up into this top left corner. Well, that, that's a problem, right? Where you want it to be is around that cross, right, where it's one and one, right, where we have essentially biomass, which is still reproducing itself, and at a fishing pressure, which isn't essentially driving that biomass to an unsustainable level. So that's essentially where we want to be. Now, the other thing you'll see very quickly in that figure is there's huge spread of data, right? That's why, actually, I like the figure, or I like the animation, because it shows that there are fisheries across a broad spectrum of lots of fishing going on, still lots of biomass, right? That would be that top corner. Well, there's a fishery up there. I don't know which fishery it is, but apparently you can fish really heavy and the biomass isn't being affected. There are some species that can cope with high fishing pressure. If we look at skipjack tuna in the Pacific, for example, fishing pressure has increased and increased and increased, but we still see that particular stock, which is the world's largest fishing stock, actually not moving into an unsustainable region of a figure like this. Other species, you really back down in the bottom corner, well, here, then there's virtually no fishing pressure, but we see biomass really dropping, right? So there's, anyway, all across this figure, there's different positions. Now, again, what I'm trying to illustrate with all of that diversity is that providing one simple statement that the oceans are going to crash becomes nonsense if we really understand the diversity of outcomes and diversity of fishing pressures and biodiversity dynamics. The second point, yeah, counterclaim. A third of fish entering the US is not illegal, which is a counterclaim to what is being made in the film, that a third of fish entering the United States is indeed illegal. Now, again, there's a scientific background to this. Papers are published by, by a group in 2014. Again, in 2017, where they have a particular methodology, they make, as we do as scientists, certain assumptions the assumption that went wrong there was that 90% of fish that is imported to the US, or rather 90% of the fish that is eaten in the United States is imported. Uh, and I won't get into the details there, but based on that, they were able to come with this statement of a third of the fish is illegal. But the amount of fish that's imported has been drastically reduced. So does that mean that no illegal fish enters the United States? Or by extension, the Netherlands? Well, no there very likely is going to be some illegal fish entering. Is that something we should be concerned about? Absolutely. Now, what the film also doesn't mention is that there's been, over the last two decades, enormous efforts made, in particular, I might add, by the European Union through their IUU regulation. Illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing regulation. This is essentially a multilateral, bilateral mechanism that the European Union puts in place to make sure that whatever fish is entering the EU market has a catch certificate, meaning that that fish, we know where that fish is being caught, we know that it's being caught in an area, therefore is reported. We would like to have the fish also coming from a regulated fishery, that regulations are in place, that's the regulated part. And if those are in place, we also would like that fish to be legal. And that's what that catch certificate communicates. And there's been enormous efforts that have gone into ensuring at a global scale that those systems have been put in place and that we can contribute through the market power, essentially, of the European Union to improve or change the IUU into an LRR, legal, reported and regulated set of fisheries. Now, if a country doesn't, if a country doesn't live up to that, uh, those requirements set by the EU, then they can receive what is called a yellow card. And if they get a yellow card, it's a warning, just like in football. And if they get a red card, then they're no longer able to sell fish to the European Union. Now, for some countries, that threat has led to enormous change. 
And there's a list of countries where enormous change has occurred in terms of putting in place regulation, in terms of putting in place traceability, putting in place le legislation in some instances around certain fisheries. So that's all in place. The United States also has followed on the EU with their, uh, with their own set of, called SIMP, which is a seafood import regulation, which more or less does the same thing. On top of that, we also see non-governmental actors, groups like Google, which is behind this, but also others, developing things like Global Fishing Watch, which is based on publicly available information of monitoring, and the science of this has expanded dramatically in the last 10 years, monitoring where, where fishermen are fishing on the high seas, because of course there becomes a bit trickier, right? We're not fishing in the waters of a particular country, so the scope for illegality and unreported, unregulated fishing is assumed to be high, which I think is a fair assumption. Not to say there aren't rules on the high sea, there are. They come through regional fishery management organisations which are also part of a United Nations transboundary fish stock agreement. So I'm just I'm not throwing these words to impress you. I'm telling you that there are a whole bunch of institutions globally where we do our best to try, we collectively, right, do our best to try and regulate these fisheries. And these non-state actors are providing another layer, which they think is, is, is valuable. The jury is out whether this will actually be effective, but really providing an added layer of transparency on what is happening beyond the shores at sea to try and map out where fishing pressure is occurring. Counterclaim three, seafood is full of pollutants. Well, it would be remiss of me to tell you that there's no pollutants in seafood. But at the same time, what this film also misses out on is the fact that seafood is one of the most heavily regulated food products when it comes to food safety. Again, within the European Union, we have a rapid alert system for food in general, and seafood is, of course, a major focus of that. And there's a whole range of, it's not only the European Union, there's a whole range of uh, food and drug administrations in, in various countries that are aimed at doing the same thing. To make a wholesale claim that all seafood is full of pollutants is simply irresponsible and untrue. Even in the most high-profile cases, where you have, for example, tuna and mercury, high-level predator, high predators, where there has been, in some parts of the world, concern over mercury levels. That's fair. There has been concern. But, at the same time, there's a difference between hazard and risk. And that becomes a very nuanced but a fundamental uh, statement when it comes to understanding pollutants in any food, let alone seafood meaning that we can have all sorts of pollutants in general terms in a food item, but whether or not that poses a risk to those consuming is a whole other question. And that has everything to do with exposure, it has everything to do with, um, well, just to say that, exposure to those, to those uh, substances. We see the same thing coming back in shrimp, in pangasius. Uh, for those of you who might know what pangasius is, this bassa catfish we can buy in the supermarkets, all sorts of claims have been made about that fish. Uh, but again, we based on research, yes, is there concern around some substances being in these fish? Well, perhaps, but even if you say that it's in there, you'd have to eat, as the research we did, 65 kilograms of that fish every day for a year before you reached a level at which you would then be affected. Now again, is this a scary seafood question? No, this is the way we govern food safety in general terms, but again, these broad statements become not very helpful. In particular because, and that's something I've mentioned already, this nutritional value of this particular source of food. Seafood is one of the most nutritional sources of food that we can eat, and especially if you're a vulnerable community and you don't have access to the same breadth and, let's say, wealth of food choice that we do in places like the Netherlands. Counterclaim four, human rights abuses in the seafood industry are real, as I've said already, but are not universal. Now, the history of this statement, I think, is also very interesting, huh? because, again, as I've said, in two, early 2010s, we, we did see increased awareness that there were labour abuses within the seafood industry. And again, there was a huge, multifaceted response. The European Union, coming back to this yellow card, red card 
system, also knowing that the European Union had a free trade agreement pending with Thailand, had a lot of leverage over Thailand. Now, we can have a whole debate over the relationship between the European Union and countries like Thailand, but this is one of the ways in which change is leveraged. And that essentially led to a whole bunch of changes. A new legislation, fishing legislation, was written in that country. A whole range of changes were made in response we see supermarkets, a coalition of supermarkets from all around the world saying, well, we don't want to have slavery, seafood slavery in any of our food. And this led, although it started in Thailand, it led to a global search for where these labour abuses could be. Now, again, I'm not saying they weren't there, but I think it's responsible also to also tell a public watching Netflix that things have moved on as well. Even the people who were interviewed in that film have been fundamental to the changes, really lobbying and, and advocating for change. And a review that was just done a couple of years ago that I have on the slide there even says there have been enormous strides taken from a critical group of NGOs, huge strides taken. Of course, then, enforcement has to be put in place. Yes, let's focus on those sorts of issues. But let's not talk about wholesale statements, which did, I have to be honest with you, and it's been a statement which has been passed around also amongst a lot, of, uh, a lot of circles, is that there was a very regional focus of a lot of the anger this film was presenting, really, to Asia. And this was an Asian problem. Well, if one thing that was presented, if this one issue illustrates anything, it shows that this isn't an Asian problem. This actually ended up being very much a global problem. We see Hawaii, we see Scotland, we see New Zealand the United States, all being drawn into these sorts of debates. And that wouldn't, have become a, that wouldn't have become apparent if we hadn't dived in and some of the measures that have been put in place had, been put, had not been put in place. The Marine Stewardship Council, you'll remember in the film that they weren't interviewed <laughs> and this became quite a useful target, in fact, right, for the filmmakers. Because, as they state, well, on the basis of that not being able to interview them, they were stating that the, the Marine Stewardship Council receives money directly for giving their label out. Well, that's highly misleading. That's highly misleading. And not really a, a fair understanding of what the MSC is and what it does and how it operates. What does the Marine Stewardship Council do? Well, it holds standards. It holds, in fact, the only publicly available global standards which define sustainability in the world. Now, my focus of research is governance and seafood governance, and I've been very critical towards a lot of these private standards, the Marine Stewardship Council, the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, based here in the Netherlands, amongst them. But do I think that the world would be a better place if they weren't there? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that those institutions can't be improved. Yes, they can absolutely be improved. But the statements here, again, are misleading because they say that they receive direct payment. Well, they don't. There's a third-party auditing system. There's a system where, indeed, people are paid to go and check if a fishery is performing against the standards that the MSC holds. And if that fishery, if that fishery decides to put a label to demonstrate that, certifi that certification to a market, to a consumer, then they can pay a licensing fee for that label. But they don't have to use the label. They don't have to. A number of years ago, McDonald's globally decided that they were going to only buy certified whitefish, Pollock, in fact. But you never saw that label when you went into a McDonald's, right? So there are different, let's say, things going on when it comes to payments and the MSC. And again, they're not there to make money. They're there to hold a standard which can be used to hold fisheries accountable to. Now, they also, I think, made a mistake with the... We know they made a mistake with the fishery that they highlighted, saying that there's a fishery, a lumpfish fishery in Iceland. This was the example they used. And that fishery was leading... what had a high degree of bycatch, even of mammals, marine mammals, seals and harbour seals. Yes, that was the case. What they failed to tell you was that that fishery was suspended from the Marine Stewardship Council, and then they fixed a number of issues associated with bycatch, and then they were let back into the program. Now, I think it's good that we ask ourselves, isn't that exactly the mechanism, the theory of change that the Marine Stewardship Council is looking for? 
And if that organisation wasn't there, what would have been the leverage that anyone would have had over making those changes within a fishery? It might be an imperfect system, but again, we have to be accurate and understand what we're talking about when, we, uh, when we're talking about different institutions of sustainability. And the last counterclaim, aquaculture. Well, I think I've already let some of this, uh, this information out already. I would argue that it's not part of the problem. It has problems, but it's not part of a global problem of seafood. In fact, it's fundamental to, I would argue, any solution we, we would want to look for to ensure that we can continue to deliver seafood into the future, which can be environmentally sustainable, that can contribute an important degree of nutrition to the world's population, and also be maintained as an important source of livelihoods for many people. Now, okay, against that big background, what are we talking about when we talked about aquaculture? How is that presented in the film? Well, again, there's 25 years of research, which also is rather biased, I might add, towards focusing on environmental issues when it comes to salmon and shrimp. And this film reproduced a lot of that science. Yes, there are issues in those industries. Do we see an improvement in those industries? Yes, also. Actually, enormous gains when it comes to feed, for example, within the salmon industry. We see fish conversion ratios, uh, so the amount of fish which needs to go in to feed to produce a salmon has dropped dramatically over the last 20 years. And we should continue to be very strict and very, let's say, we should have, maintain overview of an industry like the salmon industry. But at the same time over the last 20 years, because that's really been the science of, that some of the science that's been done around feeds and feed conversion ratios, at the same time, we've seen an explosion of species. This being 1997, this being 2017, in the number and scope of species being produced. It's exploded. And on the one hand, yes, you do have, let's say, high trophic level, huh? more predator-like fish like salmon being grown. But at the other end of the spectrum, we have seaweeds, we have mussels. That's also aquaculture. And in fact, they can have a net positive benefit to the environment. But of course, this wasn't picked up in the film. So the consequences of single solutions. Well, I would say that you know, boycotting fish is indeed a choice. Huh? Going back to that introduction, should you stop eating fish? I'm going to pick on Lenya here. Well, no, I don't think you should, but you should have the choice, right? And there is a choice. That's the point. There is a choice when it comes to the Netherlands. You have a choice, and that's good. But when we're really talking about the global impact of the seafood industry, again, 3.3 billion people around the world are reliant on seafood for nutrition. That is less of a choice for them to simply stop eating seafood. Now, I've had people in giving these talks, people say, well, but, but hang on, Simon, uh, Netflix is, is really only a US and EU thing, right? Well, you saw that map at the start, right? That's a, it's a global platform and it really communicated as a global problem. And I don't think this solution is a global solution. So, let me move into the last phase of the lecture, and we can get into some discussion. At the same, well, same time, uh, over the last two or three years, and I said this at the start, we've been working in a coalition, I've been working in a coalition of scientists from around the world on the Blue Food Assessment. Now, the starting point of the blue food assessment is more or less that we need to understand better collectively what the contribution is of blue food, of seaweed. And again, when we're talking about blue food, maybe I haven't said this, we're not just talking about fish. Fish is an easy thing to say, right? We're also talking about seaweed. We're talking about crustaceans. We're talking about mollusks. We're talking about frogs. We're even talking about insects. Anything that grows in water, that's a huge diversity, really an enormous diversity, thousands of species, which are currently exploited for food in all sorts of places around the world. So what we wanted to do as a team was to look at various aspects. We looked at climate, we looked at environments, we looked at ju social justice, we looked at um, nutrition. We looked at the role of smallholders and their livelihoods. And we looked at transformation, what new policy arrangements, what changes to policy do we need to put in place in order to ensure that not only blue food is recognised, but that we can enhance where it's necessary, enhance the ability of this industry to reproduce itself in a sustainable way, that we realise those benefits into the future. 
So the, one of the first areas we looked at, to sum up maybe three areas, well, I'm going to summarize three areas. Blue foods can enhance global nutrition. Now what we see through the work we've done is that global demand for seafood is going to double by 2050. Now that is also going to be an increase in demand in places like Europe and the United States, but there's in particular going to be an increase in demand in places where that nutritional value is very necessary. Does it mean that nutritional value isn't necessary in places like the Netherlands? Well, I think that's, that's, that's not altogether true as well. In the United States, for instance, they're very much focused now on seeing how vulnerable populations, nutritionally vulnerable populations, can benefit from increasing seafood in their diets. There we can also think of very gendered needs. Women and young children, also pregnant women, needing nutrition, and that nutritional value from seaweed being able to deliver a lot of, uh, a lot of those needs those micronutrients. And there's also this statement, potential to reduce consumption of other animal proteins. Now, we, through that modelling work uh, that was done in the, this paper, uh, we also see that where, into the future, where we are unlikely to see an increase in seafood consumption, we're more likely to see a reduction in other animal proteins. Now, that's an important thing, if we're talking not only about seafood, but we're talking about the global food system. Because if we have fish for fungus in Dutcha, if we say that if we can't eat fish but we're going to eat something else, then I think it's a very much an open question as to whether a decision not to eat fish is going to lead you to a vegan diet. What can also be an outcome is that you simply shift proteins. And then we're into a strange situation. Stop eating fish, but increase red meat, red meat consumption, for instance. Now, there's a few things going on in places like the Netherlands as well in that sense, huh? Because what we see is, indeed, alternative proteins becoming quite popular. And the assumption is, well, these are going to replace meat protein. Well, we see an increase in both currently, and we can't quite work out why, right? We see an increase in red meat consumption, as well as the alternatives. So it's not a direct path of stopping one thing and eating another. However, still with that modelling work, we see the potential is there to indeed reduce uh, other fish, or sorry, other red meats if seafood is increased. The second major finding of this program was blue foods advance equitable livelihoods. And again, it goes back to that privilege point I was raising before. So blue foods is really the cornerstone of many rural and national economies around the world. 800 million, I think it's even 900 million, in fact, livelihoods that are, are based on this industry, both farmed and wild capture around the world. Small-scale fisheries and aquaculture providing 90% of the jobs in the sector. That's not only the producers, but also the, the gleaners, huh? the people who take the meat off whatever organism it is, process that, trade that. 90% are small-scale producers who are dependent on this industry for their livelihoods. Then third statement, blue foods can enhance the sustainability of our global food system. Again, based on the work that was done, we see that a whole range of, of popular aquaculture species, taking that as an example, are, have, have the same essentially, or in the same range of the environmental footprint of chicken, which is the largest animal protein consumed, the most prevalent animal protein consumed. Now that puts it on a very different scale to these other animal proteins, nutritionally as we talked about, but also in terms of environmental footprint. And as I said also, these, these broad categories are unhelpful when we start to think about the potential of other forms of aquaculture, mussels and seaweed, for, for instance. Now the Netherlands here, we have a mussel industry has a very culture, important cultural background, but we've seen that the consumption of that muscle has declined over time because younger generations in this country, I'm really talking about the Netherlands, are apparently demonstrating less demand for that food item. Yet, if we put it on an environmental scale, we see a lot of benefits of consuming species, species groups like that. 
So if we're talking about transitions, we have to be careful again about what we're talking about, both seafood to non-seafood, but also within the seafood industry itself, and recognising where, where we can recognise that there are indeed some systems which can be beneficial. And the last slide, before we get into a discussion. One paper that's still pending is one that I've been leading, and that's really looking at blue food transformations, and it really brings it back to a policy discussion. And won't summarise the paper, but what I want to emphasise from that paper is that we're having a discussion around the role of government policy, we're talking about private standards like MSC or ASC, the Marine Stewardship Council or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, and we're talking about finance. And what we often see is that there's too much of a reliance on one of those things. Government policy is going to be the solution. If we simply put an incentive for countries to become not IUU but to move to legal, reported and regulated fisheries, then the world will be solved. If only everyone complied with the MSC or ASC standards, then everything would be fine. But what we see is that that's, none of those are going to be a solution unto themselves. And furthermore, they set goals which can in themselves be very exclusive. All of the effort that's gone into the MSC certification for the last 20 years, more than 20 years now, we only, in inverted commas, have between 15 and 20% of fisheries certified. Now, that's a substantial effort into, unto itself, but it's, it's, they don't even have the ambition of having 100% of fisheries certified because they recognise it's not the right tool for everywhere all the time. Just like the EU's IUU policy isn't going to be the right tool for everywhere all the time. There can also be side effects of the IUU policy of labelling small-scale fisheries as IUU because they're left alone by governments. Governments don't want to regulate them, so they become illegal all of a sudden. So that's also not going to be a tool that has to fit every circumstance all the time. Also, what we see is that we need fundamental changes to the basis upon which production occurs. And that links very closely to finance. And what we're saying in this paper also is we need to move away from just providing goals, performance indicators. What we need to do is think about how standards, states and finance can reinforce each other to enable new practices, sustainable practices to emerge in the seafood sector, in fact, any food sector. And if we can develop the capabilities of producers and traders, both small-scale and large-scale, mind you, to make the changes necessary to enhance the ability of this sector to deliver nutritionally valuable and, of course, economically viable seafood, nutritional seafood, then we all win. And I don't think that is captured very well in Seaspiracy, whereas I think that is exactly the debate that is happening at places like the United Nations Food Systems Summit and is certainly the challenge which is being put forward within the scientific community. So I'd like to leave it there, and I look very much forward to any questions you might have. That was the lecture. Interested in more? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube for upcoming events, or as you did just now, to listen or watch some of our previous events. Thank you for listening.